The case is submitted. We'll hear argument now on number 89-1555, Mark Dennis versus Margaret Higgin. Mr. Allen, you'll proceed. You may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether a claim that a state tax violates the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution is a claim that is cognizable under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. In pertinent part, Section 1983 provides a federal cause of action for legal and equitable relief against every person who, under color of any statute of any state, subjects any citizen of the United States to, any de to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution. In this case, the Supreme Court of Nebraska <coughs> upheld Petitioner's claim that a Nebraska truck tax that he was required to pay violated the Commerce Clause, and it affirmed a permanent injunction that the trial court had granted to Petitioner in joining respondents, who were certain state tax officials, from collecting the tax. Nevertheless, the court rejected Petitioner's claim under Section 1983 because it concluded that a state official's violation of the Commerce Clause did not deprive Petitioner of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution. The court relied mainly on the 1978 decision of the Eighth Circuit in Consolidated Freightways v. Castle, which held that the Commerce Clause does not establish individual rights against government, but instead allocates powers between the state and federal governments. The conclusion that the Commerce Clause does not secure individual rights, privileges, or immunities is, I submit, squarely at odds with many decisions of this court. Well, there's language in decisions uh, that talk about uh, individuals benefiting from it, as indeed they do, of course, by the court's application of it. But it's a little hard to find in the language of the constitutional provision that we call the Commerce Clause any intent to benefit individuals uh, in any direct sense. Wouldn't you acknowledge that? Uh, it's true, Justice O'Connor, that the Commerce Clause uh, <coughs> itself is merely a uh, state's an affirmative grant of power to the Federal Congress to regulate interstate commerce. But it's been a fundamental precept of this Court's jurisprudence, at least since 1851, when it decided Cooley versus Board of Wardens, that the Commerce Clause, in addition to granting a power to the Federal Congress to regulate interstate commerce, imposes specific obligations and restraints upon the state governments of its own force. Which can be raised without the benefit of 1983, which was not in existence at the time of Cooley versus Board of Wardens. It's true, Justice Kennedy, that they can be raised uh, uh, of their own force, but uh, that's true of many constitutional uh, and statutory provisions which this Court has held Section 1983 applies to. Well, have we ever held that 1983 applies to any constitutional provision other than the Reconstruction Amendments and the Bill of Rights? Um... I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. 
Um, but and uh, Carter the, court versus, is, the Carter versus Greenhow contra- contracts clause case would would um, be contrary to your position on this point, would it not? I don't think so, Justice Kennedy. I think uh, Carter versus Greenhow is is uh, does not support uh, the decision below for a number of reasons. First of all, it was a, it involved, if anything, the contracts clause. Um, uh, and not the Commerce Clause. Um, but second, the Court in that case, contrary to what respondents have argued, did not hold that the Contracts Clause does not secure uh, any rights under the Constitution. In fact, it held the opposite. It said that the Contracts Clause does secure rights under the Constitution. But what it specifically held was that the plaintiff in that case had not asserted that violation uh, of the Contracts Clause. Uh, and as this Court has subsequently noted, uh, in Chapman versus Houston Welfare Rights Organization and in Hague versus CIO, Carter versus Greenow was really, the, the result in that case was really based on uh, the deficiencies in the plaintiff's pleading. Um, <clears throat> in any event, I submit that the decision below is inconsistent with this Court's decisions in at least three areas. In its decisions under the Commerce Clause, in its decisions under Section 1983, and more broadly, in its decisions under other provisions of the Constitution which allocate governmental powers, but which this Court has held also secure individual protections enforceable by individuals. What do you think the implications of Golden State Transit are in this case? I think Golden State Transit, uh, Your Honor, uh, squarely supports our submission. Um, The... In that case, in that case, the court summarized the test that this court has specifically fashioned to determine what constitutes a right, privilege, or immunity that's enforceable under Section 1983. Um, it identified three factors, three considerations that are relevant to that to that inquiry, uh, all of which I submit support um, the conclusion that the Commerce Clause creates constitutional rights. First, the court stated. In deciding whether a federal right has been violated, we've considered whether the provision in question creates obligations binding on the governmental unit or rather does no more than express a congressional preference for certain kinds of treatment. Second, it stated that the interest that the plaintiff asserts must not be too vague or amorphous to be beyond the competence of the judiciary to enforce. And third, the court has said, we've also asked whether the provision in question was intended to benefit the punitive plaintiff. Under these criteria, I submit that there can be no serious question that the Commerce Clause secures rights, privileges, and immunities enforceable under Section 1983. Certainly the last inquiry raises a a very credible uh, inquiry, in my view. Well, I can only respectfully disagree, uh, uh, Justice O'Connor. I think there's no merit to the suggestion that the Commerce Clause was not intended to benefit uh, individuals. but let me just I did go through the... Well, the didn't, it, didn't it really go to the, the structure of government and the authority to be given to the new federal government and the relationship between the federal government and the states that made up the union? Do you really think that it, it gives any evidence of an intent to uh, directly benefit individuals? I think it does, Your Honor. Um, it is true that the Commerce Clause... Uh, uh, is a fundamental uh, structuring provision of the federal constitution. Indeed, uh, um, may have been one of the principal causes for the federal constitution. Um, And it allocates uh, governmental powers. But 
that is not to say, or that is not consistent, inconsistent with the proposition that it was also intended to benefit individuals. In fact, the proposition that the Commerce Clause, the contention that the Commerce Clause was not designed to benefit individuals was perhaps most dramatically and clearly refuted by this Court's decision in Morgan versus Virginia. And that was a case in which this Court upheld the claim of an interstate bus passenger challenging a state statute requiring segregation on interstate buses under the Commerce Clause. The Court struck down that statute, and it rejected the claim by the state that the plaintiff had no enforceable rights under the Commerce Clause, and the Court said constitutional protection against burden on, burdens on commerce is for her benefit. What is it? Analytically, uh, is the case any different for Commerce Clause purposes than Gibbons versus Ogden? Well, this case, unlike Gibbons versus Ogden, is a dormant Commerce Clause case. In this case, uh, <coughs> Gibbons versus Ogden really went off on, on uh, Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, and this is, this is a straight dormant Commerce Clause case. But the Court, in case after case under the dormant Commerce Clause, has upheld the rights of individuals to enforce individual personal protections under the Commerce Clause. And perhaps more importantly, in those cases, the Court has used the term rights to describe the protections that the Commerce Clause gives. For example, in Boston Stock Exchange versus State Tax Commission, the Court upheld the claim of certain tax commissions that a New York statute violated the Commerce Clause, and it rejected the contention that, those stock, that the plaintiffs were not entitled to raise those claims by saying <clears throat> that plaintiffs are asserting their right under the Commerce Clause to engage in interstate commerce free of discriminatory state taxation. <clears throat> um, uh, under your theory, is, is there any violation of the Constitution by a state actor that does not give rise to a 1983 suit? I can't think of any, Your Honor. Uh, the the um, respondents and uh, the court below attempt to analogize the the Commerce Clause to the Supremacy Clause, which, of course, this court last term in Golden State Transit said was not uh, itself a, a uh, r source of rights actionable under Section 1983. But the Supremacy Clause is very different from the Commerce Clause or really from any other provision of the Constitution. The Supremacy Clause is merely a declaration of the supremacy of federal law. It does not of itself impose any specific restraints or obligations on the states or on the federal government. The Commerce Clause, in contrast, is a source of federal rights and of, oblig and of specific obligations that are imposed on the states. And indeed, in this very case, the courts below imposed those obligations on the state of Nebraska, and they did so at the behest of petitioner in order to protect his interests. Uh, it is, I submit, a contradiction in terms for the court below to, to conclude that the petitioner has an enforceable protection and yet has no right. <clears throat> but again, I think the, the, this court's decisions that perhaps are clearest on this point are the, are the decisions in Morgan versus Virginia um, and most clearly refute the, the decision of the court below that the Commerce Clause doesn't protect individual rights or Morgan versus Virginia Boston Stock Exchange, and also United States versus Guest. In United States versus Guest, the court upheld an indictment under the criminal counterpart to Section 1983, 
uh, which alleged that the defendants <clears throat> had violated the constitutional rights of certain black citizens to travel freely to and from the state of Georgia. The court upheld that indictment, and it said that the constitutional right to travel was based on the Commerce Clause. I submit that, the, that <clears throat> this court could not affirm the decision below without effectively overruling all of those decisions, or at least calling them seriously into question. Now, respondents have argued <clears throat> that those cases are not important because they didn't involve Section 1983, and because they didn't involve the precise question of what Section 1983 means by rights, privileges, and immunities. But there's no basis for the supposition that Section 1983 intended the words rights, privileges, or immunities to have any different meaning from their commonly understood meaning or from their meaning and usage in other contexts. Respondents, in effect, would have this court employ a special vocabulary for Section 1983 that's at odds with its ordinary meaning. <coughs> as I, <coughs> furthermore, as I've said, respondents' contention that the Commerce Clause does not secure individual rights is inconsistent with a specific uh, test that this court fashioned and summarized in Golden State Transit versus Los Angeles for determining what constitutes a right, privilege, or immunity enforceable under Section 1983? Is there any, is there any claim in this case that, uh, that, you, that this action could not have been brought under ordinary uh, jurisdictional provisions? No, um, it could not have been brought in federal court um, under federal jurisdictional statutes, or it could not have been brought in federal court for several reasons. First. Uh, it sought an injunction against the state tax, and the fa Federal Tax Injunction Act prohibits federal courts from entertaining mm -hmm. such actions. And second of all, it sought monetary relief, and the 11th Amendment prohibits federal courts from entertaining mm -hmm. such actions. So as a factual matter, the only place this, this claim, uh, with or without Section 1983, can be brought well, if is in tax court. Suppose a state tax weren't, uh, weren't at issue, and suppose only an injunction is sought. Uh, you can bring uh, a federal question suit in the... You can, yes, you can... Uh, uh, claiming, if, claiming that there's been a, a... If there was a state regulation, Your Honor, such as a, a truck tack, a truck length law or something, uh, you could uh, mm -hmm. uh, have federal question jurisdiction and now without an... And uh, rely on the Dormant Commerce Clause. Yes, you could. And uh, get an injunction. Yes. Uh, the same is true, but the same, I, I think the point... Mm -hmm that I would stress is the same is true of other provisions of the Constitution and of federal statutes this Court has held are enforceable. Well, I know, but if you, could, uh, if you could get an injunction uh, in such a, a federal question case, uh, I suppose it's based on the fact that you have a right to it. That's absolutely correct. Um, and indeed, this Court has, has has uh, stated that in Davis versus Passman, the court said that the, the essence of a cause of action is the is the ability to enforce a right. Um, again, it's a contradiction. I don't suppose any um, the other side doesn't disagree with that, do they, or do they, or do they say it's no right? It's just a standing question. I think what they say is that if it's a right in other contexts, it's not a right in the context of Section 1983. Okay, Mr. Allen, help me on something that. I've don't quite understand. You could not have brought this action to federal court because the defendants are protected by the 11th Amendment. Are, the, are not those defendants held not to be persons within the meaning of 1983 for that reason? 
Uh, no, uh, Justice Stevens, they uh, are persons uh, for these purposes. In Will versus Michigan Department of State Police, right. I think last term or the term before, the court held that states themselves were not persons within the meaning of Section 1983. Or, or officers acting in their official capacity. And officers acting in their official capacities when sued for monetary relief. But the court, in footnote 10 of that opinion, uh, made uh, the clear distinction that officials sued in their official capacity for injunctive relief are persons who are subject to suit under Section so, 1983. Insofar as you sought monetary relief, it clearly is not a 1983 claim. That's correct. So you're claiming the injunctive aspect of the case is the 1983 claim. That's correct. <clears throat> Respondents don't deny that, uh, going back to the Golden State... No, let me pursue that one step further. Do you think that the uh, Tax Injunction Act modifies 1983 in any respect? Is it possible if you construed those two cases, the, t t the two statutes together, you'd say, well, you can't get monetary relief because of the 11th Amendment, and you also should not construe 1983 to author authorize equitable relief in federal court, at least, by virtue of the Tax Injunction Act? I suppose that would be true. It would. It yes. couldn't. But, you, but then there's this very narrow area that 1983 provides a, a cause of action in state court only, even though, if you're right on the merits, you clearly have a state remedy, and the 1983 action is totally superfluous except for the provision for attorney's fees. Is that right? Essentially, that's correct. It's not totally superfluous except for attorney's fees because there may be instances in which the um, state officials uh, are uh, violating uh, constitutional rights in bad faith. For example, if state officials adopted a practice of harassing people coming into their state because they were from the state of Ohio, uh, because they didn't like Ohio um, uh, and did so in bad faith in violation of the Commerce Clause, I think that in those circumstances someone would have a, a cause of action for damages against the individuals. Um, but in this case, we've not... But not if they're state acting in their... Well, I see... But if, they're, but if they're acting in bad faith, they would not have a qualified immunity. Um, and I think that's an important... Uh, a consideration with respect to the issue in this case. Uh, and that's an important reason, I think, that Section 1983 needs to be given uh, the full scope that its language suggests. Um, it <laughs> you wouldn't need the Commerce Clause uh, in that situation. If they, were, if they were using state law to exclude people in bad faith without any good state reason for it, you'd have a cause of action, I would assume, anyway, without the Commerce Clause, wouldn't you? I mean, once you posit bad faith, which is what makes them not state... Uh, not states being... I think I can... Justice Scalia, I think one could conceive of a circumstance where um, such discrimination might not violate the Equal Protection Clause, but yet be a bad faith violation of the Commerce Clause. Um, for instance, this Court has held that the Equal Protection Clause does not uh, prohibit retaliatory uh, um, state actions, but the Commerce Clause, I think, clearly does, as, as all the cases have held. In, in the Morgan case, they deliberately left out the 14th Amendment. It wasn't in there at all. It was strictly Commerce Clause. It was strictly Commerce. I don't know why uh, they left it out, but it was strictly a Commerce Clause case. Ask me sometime, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, the, uh, the respondents, getting back to the Golden State uh, test, the respondents don't really dispute that uh, this, uh, the Commerce Clause satisfies at least the first two considerations in Golden State, but they hang their argument on the, on the, third, the third consideration, which they claim the Commerce Clause doesn't meet, 
that is, that it has an intent. Uh, has, it allegedly has no intent to benefit individuals, and I submit that that's simply uh, not true. Um, that Morgan uh, and other cases indicate that it does uh, does have that intent. But furthermore, the di- the dichotomy that the um, respondents in the court below uh, seek to draw between, on the one hand, the purpose of the Commerce Clause to allocate government powers and to serve national and broad societal interest, and on the other hand, a purpose to benefit individuals, is, I submit, a false dichotomy. The fact that a constitutional provision may allocate powers and have a purpose to serve broad national interest does not mean that it is not, does not also intend to serve and secure liberty for individuals. And in fact, this court has consistently rejected uh, that dichotomy in cases involving provisions of the Constitution which allocate powers among the branches of the, of the government. Um, and perhaps for purposes of the issue in this case, that is the question whether such provisions give rise to individual rights, the most telling decision is this court's decision last term in United States versus Munoz Flores, where the court <coughs> rejected the government's argument that the origination clause, which requires revenue measures to originate in the House of Representatives, rejected the government's argument that that clause doesn't involve individual rights. <coughs> the court, excuse me, <coughs> the court specifically stated that um, the government's contention that the origination clause does not uh, involve individual rights is erroneous, and the court said it had re- it has repeatedly uh, upheld provisions. Um, uh, separating government, separation in separation of powers cases, uh, up- uh, repeatedly upheld the claims of individuals uh, seeking to enforce their own protections based on those provisions. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to briefly address respondents' contention that the legislative history of Section 1983 supports um, the decision below. Uh, the, court of, uh, the Supreme Court of Nebraska made no reference to the legislative history. Uh, respondents, however, have relied on it, and they've relied primarily on certain remarks of Representative Shellabarger, um, which appear to draw a distinction between power provisions of the Constitution which relate to the division of powers between the state and federal government and provisions which <coughs> secure the rights of individuals within the states. And uh, I think three things should be said about uh, those remarks. First, there's nothing in those remarks that indicate that Congressman Representative Shellabarger was expressing any view about the scope of the legislation that would become Section 1983. The thrust of his remarks appeared to be that remedial legislation was particularly necessary in the case of the latter type provisions. But he did not say, and he did not suggest, that the legislation that he was supporting did not encompass all of the provisions of the Constitution. And indeed, the absence of any limiting or qualifying language refute any such suggestion. <clears throat> Second, it's not clear what provisions Congressman, uh, exactly what provisions Congressman Shellabarger uh, would have put into which category. Um, the examples he gave of power-dividing provisions were uh, the provisions uh, providing that the states shall enter into no treaties, that they shall not coin money, and they shall not emit 
uh, letters of credit. Um, the examples that he gave of the latter type provisions were the uh, fugitive uh, from justice provision of the Constitution, the fugitive slave provision, and the privileges and immunities clause. Most importantly, nothing in his remarks made any reference to the Commerce Clause. And there's simply no basis for the supposition that Congressman Shellabarger would have concluded that the dormant Commerce Clause did not create rights uh, with respect to individuals as between individuals and their states. And in fact, this Court's decisions uh, n numerous decisions of this court establish that the Dormant Commerce Clause does establish rights with respect to individuals as between them and the states. <clears throat> I suppose you could say the same thing in, the, in a sense about the Treaty Clause. Conceivably, an individual could challenge an agreement that was made, say, between the state of California and Mexico on the grounds that it was actually a treaty that needed to be approved by Congress, and then they were trying to do something to this person under the treaty. They, they would at least have standing to do that. They would have standing. And if the question of, the, of whether or not the treaty provision uh, gave rise to Section 1983 uh, um, cause of action, I think that would be a, an interesting and perhaps difficult question. More difficult than this one, you Certainly more difficult than this one. In sum, Your Honors, uh, in sum, uh, the Section 1983 provides a federal cause of action for the deprivation of any rights, privileges, and immunities secured by the Constitution without any limitation or qualification. This Court's decisions have repeatedly held that the coverage of Section 1983 must be broadly construed, and it has consistently rejected efforts to limit the scope of rights that are covered by Section 1983. Now, if it were for some reason appropriate to carve out the Commerce Clause from the protections that Section 1983 provides, Congress is free to do so. But there is simply no warrant for this Court to do so on the basis of respondents' strained and unnatural reading of the statute. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Allen. Uh, Mr. Bartell, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Respondents maintain the decision below was correctly decided for three basic reasons. First, under the test set forth by this Court last term in Golden State, a right is secured by the Constitution under Section 1983, only where the constitutional provision at issue is intended to benefit the plaintiff, asserting the existence of a right actionable under Section 1983. Second, the nature and purpose of the Commerce Clause as interpreted and applied by this Court, demonstrates the clause was intended to allocate power between the states and the federal government in order to preserve the national interest in maintaining political and economic union. The clause was not intended to benefit individuals or participants in the interstate marketplace and thus secures no right to petitioner actionable under Section 1983. Third, the legislative history of Section 1983. Certainly, there are causes of action, but not one under Section 1983. Well, there was a cause of action in this case. In state court. That's correct. Yes, and uh, based on the Commerce Clause. Yes, petitioner had standing to raise his claim in state court. Well, and they not only raised it, they, uh, they, he won on that claim. 
He received declaratory injunctive relief. That's correct. Yes. And he, did he get an injunction against the tax? Yes, he received prospective injunctive relief. And there, he, but he has no right. He had no right. What was he, just a private attorney general? Or he, has, he has no right within the special meaning of Section 1983, a right secured by the Constitution under, this test, under the test set forth by the court in Golden State. In Golden State, the court specifically stated that one of the standards for determining whether a constitutional provision secures a right within the meaning of that, of that uh, statute is that the provision in question must be one which was intended to benefit the plaintiff. We submit the Commerce Clause is not such a constitutional provision. Well, and if, if in this case, if they had been paying illegal, what they claim to be illegal taxes, and uh, the state court said yes, uh, the, the statutes, those, those taxes are unconstitutional, uh, and uh, the question uh, then might be about a refund. And suppose the state court said, yeah, you get a refund of past taxes. Still no right. Within the meaning of Section 1983, no. There's a distinction here that we need to make between a general version or a general understanding of a right, for example, a right to bring a, bring a case in, into court, and the, the special meaning of a right under Section 1983. And while uh, the petitioner seems to say that there is a common understanding of what the word right means under Section 1983, obviously the test set forth in Golden State indicates that there are limitations on that, and that the, one of the limitations is the express requirement that it be intended to benefit the plaintiff. And we submit the Commerce Clause if that is the basis for the claim. Mr. Berto, why don't you slow down just a little bit? I think we could understand you. Certainly, Certainly Your Honor. The parties here agree that the standard to be employed in determining whether a constitutional provision secures a right under Section 1983 is set forth in the Court's decision in Golden State. The disagreement here is based on the application of the Golden State Standard to claims of a violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause. And the crucial element of the first part of the Golden State tested issue here is whether the Commerce Clause was intended, is intended to benefit the plaintiff. We submit the ultimate question, which must be the answer, is whether Dennis is standing to sue as a person affected let me, by a let me state just, law. May I just interrupt? Are you saying, obviously, back at the time the clause was drafted, the plaintiff wasn't around, but the people who were engaged in the business of transporting goods and, and people across state lines uh, from one state to another, you say that the uh, Interstate Commerce Clause was not intended to benefit people engaged in that sort of activity? The history and background of the Commerce Clause demonstrate that its purpose was to allocate power between the state and the federal government. I understand, but you were, asking, you were talking about the people who, to whom it was intended to benefit. And aren't these the very quintessential examples of people who are intended to be benefited by, by having interstate commerce free of... Uh, of discriminatory restrictions and the like. The basis for the Commerce Clause was not the basis of conferring benefits on individuals per se. The protections to be afforded by the Commerce Clause are national in scope. The interests of preserving national interests in economic unity. The, the, the historical background of the clause was obviously to to uh, eliminate the type of commercial warfare and economic rivalries. Are, are you saying there are no individuals who are intended to be benefited? It was just a structural provision that, that didn't benefit anyone except to form the basis for the, the way the government was put together? Is that your point? It's our position that whatever benefits may be derived to individuals as a result of the existence of the Commerce Clause and the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine are merely incidental to the clause's main purpose, that purpose being, again, to preserve the national interest in, in political and economic union. So really what you're saying is with respect to the first of the three points you're making, I don't understand some of you want, there really are no individual businesses or persons who would fit the, the requirement of being intended beneficiaries of the clause. 
That's correct. And this Court's decisions have, in Commerce Clause cases, confirmed the notion that the interests involved in being resolved in those cases are not individual interests but national interests. Um, Does your analysis on that point turn on the proposition that uh, Congress could permit the states to regulate if it chose? Is that is that what makes this right one that is not a right given directly to the person? It's, it's a part of it, I think, Your Honor, because it indicates that perhaps it is certainly not a, whatever they're claiming is, is not sub, is certainly subject to qualification. Congress can remove it, any individual's ability to act entirely, or it can give the states the authority to restrict or prohibit and enact legislation that they otherwise could not do. For example, under application of the Dormant Commerce Clause, but the the key focus is, as the court has recognized in in several decisions, that the clause itself uh, protects only the interstate marketplace and not particular participants in the marketplace or firms operating in commerce. In Exxon versus Maryland and Minnesota versus Cloverleaf Creamery. And and what would you do with a case arising under the contract clause? Well, as 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 you indicated, Justice Kennedy, in questioning uh, counsel here. The contracts clause in Carter versus Greenhow was um, held not to secure a right within the meaning of Section 1983. It was not a right well, secured you, by. Let's assume you can explain the case away as a pleading case so that the issue came back before us to know. But would you distinguish between the Commerce Clause and the Contract Clause? Perhaps under the Golden State test of intent to benefit, one might view the, the specific nature of the contracts clause, by referencing contracts themselves, it seems to, an argument could certainly be made, that that reference relates directly to perhaps individual rights, because contracts obviously relate to the rights of individuals, vested rights there, and that might arguably present a little different analysis than you would, but clearly the, contra- the Commerce Clause is different, much different than the Contracts Clause in the sense that it doesn't support any type of civil or notion. It's, it is an allocation, clearly a distribution of powers between the states and the national government. So the clauses really are different in nature, even if one were to re-examine Carter. Do you think there's a right to engage in interstate commerce? Not as that term is used in Section 1983, no. But there is a right, nevertheless. Only if you use the term in the sense that perhaps the well, individuals... Well, the state says... Uh, says uh, no imported uh, natural gas shall be allowed in this state. And the uh, people who are excluded uh, uh, <coughs> sue and win. you think they had a right or not? They certainly have standing to, in, in essence, vindicate the national interest in, in holding that kind of legislation unconstitutional. That's mm-hmm. correct. But it's not based on an individual right secured by the Constitution under 1983. Perhaps I think the distinction was recognized. How, how do you explain, again, um, cases like United States versus Guest and Morgan, which speak in terms of individual rights and purported to give relief, at least, for a violation of a right to travel that the court said was covered by the Commerce Clause? Well, first we take issue with Petitioner's assertion that the decision in Guest uh, was based strictly on the Commerce Clause. We, we read Guest as not being specifically based or basing the constitutional right to travel on the Commerce Clause. Uh, in subsequent opinions of the Court, Shapiro versus Thompson and Attorney General versus Soto Lopez, the Court has declined to locate the right to travel in any specific provision of the Constitution. 
Furthermore, we think there is a distinction that should be drawn between a petitioner's alleged right to engage in an interstate trade, and that's an interest that should be viewed as fundamentally different from the right of the personal right to travel at issue in these cases. As for Morgan, we view Morgan as simply a consistent application of this Court of vindicating a national interest in state commerce as opposed to the recognition of any individual right. I don't know why in the answer you gave me, why you didn't just repeat the same answer, that it's just not the kind of a right that 1983 is talking about. Well, because I wanted to distinguish talk, but Morgan in particular, I think, since they rely so heavily on it, I'd like to emphasize that, that this case was not an individual right type case at all and that the actual holding of the case was based solely on the, the national interest served by the Commerce Clause. The Court there stated that the reason the statute was invalid, not was based on the violation of individual right, but rather because the statute unduly burdened interstate commerce because seating arrangements for the different races in interstate motor travel require a single uniform rule to protect and promote national travel. Again, this is consistent with the consistent recognition by the Court that the anything, the decision in Commerce Clause cases is not based on an individual right. Rather, it is a national interest being vindicated, and that is the basis for the Court's decisions. What about the right conferred upon a businessman to be free from predatory practices by another businessman? Is that, is that under the Sherman Act? Is that an individual right, or is that just a national interest? Well, of course, we're dealing here with Section 1983. I understand, but I don't grasp the distinction. You draw a dichotomy between those statutes and those provisions that seek to prevent, protect private interests and those that seek to protect national interests. But in fact, I thought every time Congress passes a statute or the people enact a constitutional provision, they're not doing it for the selfish benefit of some individuals. Isn't there a national interest behind every right that's conferred? They always have some further good government objective to it, don't they? Certainly, the Court has recognized that the Constitution, after all, as a whole, was designed for all the purposes of the nation itself. The Commerce Clause does indeed have in mind free travel and whatnot, but in order to assure that national interest, it gives rights to particular individuals to assert the right. As the Sherman Act, in order to get lower prices for all consumers, gives rights to businessmen to sue for predatory practices. But the critical question here, though, is we're dealing with the interpretation of statute passed by Congress. And what did Congress mean when it used the words right, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution under Section 1983? And we think that the legislative history is revealing as to what Congress intended when it enacted the 1871 Civil Rights Act. Well, what you're saying is that they intended some shadowy distinction between rights that have a national interest and rights that don't have a national interest. And I'm just trying to fathom whether that distinction makes enough sense that any rational person could have had it in mind. I don't see the two. What about the — is there a private right in the Origination Clause? Does that — the Origination Clause of the Constitution, does that confer a private right which requires tax bills to be originated in the House? We have allowed suits to be brought, alleging taxes to be unconstitutional when they are imposed under a taxing statute that did not originate in the House but originated in the Senate. Is that a private right in your mind or a national right? 
Well, of course, Munoz Flores, as cited by the petitioner here, involved, I believe, the origination clause and the precise question of whether the person there had a right to bring the action. That, of course, revolves on a consideration of separation of powers in that instance. Now, perhaps because the separation of powers doctrine was primarily designed as a prevention against tyranny, you know, for individuals. You consider that a national right, then? That would be a national right, not a 1983-type right. Certainly. It doesn't. It would not implicate 1983, but your question is, is there some individual right nevertheless, uh, you know, obviously outside of 1983 because it involves federal action. Um, again, to, give in, to, to recognize the right of individuals to challenge that kind of an action is, is based, as I said, on probably a recognition that that type of constitutional protection, separation of powers, serves a very important function, the prevention of tyranny within the branches of government. And it, of course, represents, represents a concern fundamentally different than the one we're raising here. It simply is the, the meaning of Section 1983, again, as set forth in the legislative history of the Act by its principal sponsor and others, and an understanding that not all constitutional provisions were covered by the Act's rights, privileges, or immunities language. Um, in addition to Representative Schellebarger, who I think's comments are highly relevant, we've also pointed out that other representatives and even and, uh, senators at the time of the passage of the Act recognized the same distinction between constitutional provisions that served to uh, deal with the relationship between individuals and the states, which were to be covered by the Act, and uh, the constitutional provisions recognizing the distinction between the political powers between the states and the general government. Now, clearly, it would appear that the Commerce Clause, although not specifically mentioned by Representative Schellebarger, falls in the category of a rights or a power allocating provision. And Representative Hoare specifically mentioned the Com- Commerce Clause in his comments, as we cited in our brief at page 36 and 37, in distinguishing, in distinguishing those from the types of personal rights to be covered by the 1871 Act. Senator Trumbull recognized the same distinction, including a reference to interstate commerce being an, a, a provision dealing with national authority as opposed to an individual rights granting provision. We do not think that legislative history should be lightly dismissed, as, resp- as petitioner would ask us to do here. Um, in addition to the Morgan case, petitioner has also relied almost heavily on Boston Stock Exchange versus State Tax Commission. We submit that the reference in Boston Stock Exchange uh, to a right to engage in interstate commerce it is included within a discussion of the standing of the exchanges to bring the act and talks about the adverse effect, injury in fact, requirements that deal simply with their standing to bring the action. And if you look at the decision on the merits, you will see that the actual basis for the court's finding the tax unconstitutional in that case is an undue burden on interstate commerce, focused on the free trade purpose, in other words, the national interest served by the, by the Commerce Clause and not the recognition of any, any individual right possessed by the exchanges. The non-application of Section 1983 to uh, claims of this nature, we think, is, is also uh, demonstrated by some cases decided by the Court shortly after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1871. In 1885, again, the Carter v. Greenhow case, in which the Court distinguished between the language in the federal question statute, the broader arising under the Constitution language, as opposed to the more limited rights secured by language in Section 1983. Um, the significance of that, I think, is that it recognized that shortly after the Act that not all constitutional violations were intended to be within the scope of Section 1983. Again, Bowman versus Chicago and Northwestern Railway Company, another 1885 decision. 
involved a claim on, the, on Commerce Clause grounds that a state statute restricting interstate deliveries of li- liquor violated the plaintiff's right to, in, to engage in interstate commerce. The Court there indicated that while that claim may be one arising under the Constitution, it did not state a claim for the deprivation of any rights secured by the Constitution. We believe there are additional considerations that would militate against the course expanding Section 1983 to Commerce Clause litigation. Uh, the major impact of Section 1983 here would be simply to permit a recovery of attorney's fees. Um, when Congress enacted the attorney fee statute in 1976 to ensure effective access to the courts, uh, we find it difficult to believe that Commerce Clause litigation was among the type of cases that Congress was concerned was being denied effective access to the courts, given the long history of Commerce Clause litigation in the country. You, you suggest that uh, because uh, you really can't say Congress's purpose or, or that the purpose of the Constitution was to confer private rights, uh, 1983 doesn't cover it, even if, even if, uh, uh, in order to affect that purpose, uh, private individuals must be given a cause of action. Well, again, the, the basic premise here is that... So it's the purpose, the purpose of the clause. Whether you can say that it's the purpose was to give private rights or really just to vindicate a national interest. You're saying the purpose of the Commerce Clause. Yes. The purpose, we think, indicates that under the Golden State Test, that the constitutional provision which they claim secures their right here was not intended to confer the type of specific benefit on individuals participating in the marketplace recognized well, under Section 1980. You can say even even if in order to affect the purpose that the, that the clause has, you must allow individuals to sue and recover. Certainly, and, and individuals have throughout the history of the nation yeah. done so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, that, and indeed, in this case, the courts of Nebraska were open to them. It was not a situation where they were being denied their remedy. The question was whether their cause of action would be one under Section 1983 or whether they would have to pursue their remedy under some other uh, claim. Um, we've also suggested to the court that if it should find that claims under the Dormant Commerce Clause are actionable under Section 1983, that a remand would be appropriate because we feel that the implications of the Tax Injunction Act have not been addressed here and that they should be because they indicate that perhaps Congress has established an alternative remedial scheme which has precluded availability of Sections 1983 and 1988 in this particular class of cases. In 1987, the court in Arkansas Writers Project versus Ragland indicated that the question of whether state courts must entertain Section 1983 claims in state tax challenges had not been decided. And three years, two years prior to that, in Spencer versus South Carolina Tax Commission, the court had affirmed on a 4-4 vote without opinion that a decision of the South Carolina Supreme Court, which denied attorney's fees in a claim in a state tax case based on the Privileges and Immunities Clause, uh, we submit that perhaps in the event, the court should find that there is a cause of action under Section 1983 here that a remand would be appropriate to address the effect of the impact of Section 1983 and 1988 in a state tax challenge. There are no further questions. I have no Thank you, Mr. Bartell. Mr. Allen, do you have rebuttal? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. <clears throat> First, I'd like to respond to the 
contention that uh, United States versus Guest did not base the decision there on the Commerce Clause. That's simply incorrect. Guest squarely rested uh, the uh, violation, the, the alleged violation of the identical statutory language uh, on the Commerce Clause at 383 U.S. at 758, the court said, in Edwards versus people of the state of California invalidating a California law which impeded the free interstate passage of an indigent, the court based its reaffirmation of the federal right of interstate travel upon the Commerce Clause. This ground of decision was consistent with precedents firmly establishing that the federal commerce power surely encompasses the movement in interstate commerce of persons as well as commodities. And for that reason, they upheld count four of that indictment. <clears throat> Second, with respect to the contention that uh, Bowman versus um, uh, Chicago Northwestern Railroad somehow supports petitioner, that's simply incorrect again. Bowman uh, did not did not hold that the Commerce Clause did not secure rights uh, under the Constitution. Uh, what the court in Bowman held was that the plaintiff's claim in that case against the railroad was simply a state law claim. In other words, a claim that the railroad was obliged by the state law of common carriage to carry his commodities. And that's why the court rejected his claim uh, and found that it did not fall within the jurisdictional statute. Um, and an interesting contrast to Bowman, I think, uh, is a case around the same period, which is one of the early cases enforcing the Dormant Commerce Clause against a discriminatory state tax, and that's Guy versus Baltimore in, 19, in 1879. And in that case, the court struck down a Baltimore wharfage fee that was imposed only on ships that came into Baltimore carrying out-of-state commodities. And the court said, if the prohibition against discriminatory taxation were not uh, in the, in the uh, Commerce Clause, it is easy to perceive how the power of Congress to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states could be practically annulled. And this is the important part. And the equality of commercial, commercial privileges secured by the federal Constitution to citizens of the several states materially abridged and impaired. Clearly the court at that time viewed the Commerce Clause as securing privileges to the citizens of the several states. <coughs> Uh, reference was made uh, to remarks of other congressmen, and particularly uh, Congressman Hoare during the debates on Section uh, 1983. If you read Congressman Hoare's remarks, basically he was engaging in a dissertation on the Constitution and explaining how there were different types of provisions. But there's nothing in his remarks that suggests that he understood the proposed legislation as not including rights under the Commerce Clause. Uh, finally, I'd like to address briefly the uh, uh, respondent's argument that if this court recognizes that... Thank you, Mr. Allen. Your time has expired. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>